What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Quarantine Edition. My name is Jared, and I'm joined here by the Wisecrack crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? Be safe. We got Alec. Hey. And today we're talking about the movie Watchmen, the 2009 movie directed by Zack Snyder, starring Jackie Earl Haley, Patrick Wilson, Malin Ackerman, Billy Crudup, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, based on the graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, adapted by the screen by David Solid Snake Hater and Alex Say. As always, we're going to go around and get some first impressions. What do people think the first time they saw this movie? What do they think revisiting it for this podcast? I already know what Alec thinks, and I'm very curious to hear what Ryan thinks. So let's hear what Ryan has to say. Ryan, tell us about your relationship with Watchmen. Uh, remind me, Jared, did we watch this the first time together, or was that me and Adam? I think... It might have it been you and Adam. I saw this at the Draft House back in 2009 with my roommates. Anyway, whatever. I loved this movie the first time. I had never uh, read the source material yet, uh, but now I have. So uh, this is one of the, one of the few times... And show me the meaning of history where I, Ryan, have read a book that has to do <laughs> with the movie we're watching. And so now I can actually critically look at it from the filmmaking perspective and, you know, the, the literature perspective. And I have to say that, you know, the, uh, I had always heard of the kind of legend of Watchmen before the movie came out. Like that it was, it had always been called unfilmable, quote unquote. I think that's even in the title of our of our of our talk today, filming the unfilmable, and I have to say he did a fucking awesome job filming the unfilmable. If I have to say so, Zack Snyder is a great filmmaker. I think he's kind of lost it a little bit in his later uh, twilight years of of his directing career. But um, this was him at his apex, I think. This in three hundred, um, but uh, but this, in terms of adapting something and then making it really cool and accessible to the masses, and also keeping it to the core of what the spirit of the, uh, the original thing was. I think it was great. So, uh, I don't know, nine out of 10. Uh, and I'm just also a sucker for, for slow motion montages while pop songs play. So if you are into that, Zack Snyder is your man. So this movie's great. I'm excited to talk about it. Cool. I'm excited to talk about it too. Especially after hearing what Alec has to say, Alec, what do you think about this movie? <laughs> oh God, I'm going to get crucified. Uh, oh, you well, made it. Yeah, well, I saw this movie a long time ago before I think I was a teenager. Um, I had not read the graphic novel. I don't even think I knew the graphic novel existed. And I remember kind of maybe liking it. I think I was confused, which isn't a a hate on the movie. I was just kind of like a dumb sort of film viewer at the time. Uh, Didn't pay close attention to stuff, nor did I really understand what the source material or the movie was trying to go for. So the main emotion I remember is feeling confused. Um, Now present day i've read the graphic novel uh i you know watch tv show which obviously is very different and i watched the ultimate cut which is three and a half hours so some of my this is what i want to kind of figure out some of my perspective here is maybe informed by that but i was so bored it's so long and the movie already is long and this just made it long so maybe i'm being unfair but i also think and we can talk about this a little bit later that Zack Snyder tries to adapt the movie with a, in some ways, like very religiously, like there's so many small little details that are true to the comic, but in a way that it ends up being in an uncanny value with the source material in a way that I feel like is not good. And I also feel like on an aesthetic level, he tries to, to make it seem like the Watchmen, but is maybe not getting it like on a tonal level or a subtextual level. I, I don't know. We can talk about that later. 
Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that because my relationship with this is, so I read the graphic novel the day before the film came out back in 2009. I read the whole thing on one plane flight. And then the next day I already had tickets to see the movie. And I was overall really impressed with the adaptation. I thought that uh, the movie was really good. I've seen the movie probably like six times, although this was the first time watching the ultimate cut. And for people who haven't watched the ultimate cut, that whole thing with uh, the freighter, what is it, the, the black freighter? Tales they from the add, black freighter? Yeah, they add that into the movie, which I don't even think they needed it in the in the graphic novel, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I understand that there's some interesting parallels that go with the characters and stuff, but it wasn't my favorite part of the graphic novel and definitely did not need to be in the movie. Um, there are also, so I actually have seen the theatrical cut a number of times. It's the better movie. Uh, than the ultimate cut. So I'll be able to answer some of your questions, Alec, about what was cha- what was changed, because I have seen it a number of times. So then I started thinking about it more, and then I reread the graphic novel years later, and I started to think, well, I don't know, did Zack Snyder get something wrong? Is this whole graphic novel a bit pithier than Zack Snyder kind of like glommed onto? But then after rewatching it, and I didn't reread the graphic novel in its entirety, but uh, Alec and I have been working on a Watchmen video that uh, focuses on the HBO show that comes out this Friday that I'm really excited about. And I've come to the conclusion that, no, I think Zack Snyder did a really awesome job. I think this movie is freaking awesome. I think it's probably his best move. It's, it's, his, it's his best movie. Um, there are some of the performances are probably the, the most memorable performances that actor will have in their career. I mean, I guess for Walking Dead fans, you could ar- argue Jeffrey Dean Morgan is better as Negan, but Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the comedian is so inspired. Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach is amazing. That's like the role he was born to play. The guy who plays Ozymandias, I think, is the, is the biggest letdown because it's such an interesting, great role, and I did not like that actor at all. What's his name? Like Matthew Good or something like that. Wasn't into him. I liked Billy Crudup as Dr. Manhattan. Every frame of this movie is gorgeous. And it's and, and to your point, Alec, it is very reverent to the source material. I'm interested to hear more about how it could be kind of like overly reverent or like kind of that uncanny, uncanny valley thing. But overall, I think this is Zack Snyder's best movie and just painstaking attention to detail and craft and... Uh, I think it's freaking awesome. And in a time where like loving Zack Snyder is not the coolest thing in the world, I think that this is like total testament to the fact that he is a balls to the wall, excellent filmmaker. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Are you not a 300 man? I would say 300 is his best I movie. I love 300 when I first saw it. I don't know. Does that movie hold up or does it? Yeah, I, baby. I haven't, <laughs> I, I haven't seen it since theaters. Turn it on and crank up the volume. It's great. Okay. Yeah. Still I, I just up. remember. I just remember it being just a syringe of pure adrenaline to the jugular. Yes, that is what it is. Okay. Cinematic, uh, yeah. cinematic cocaine. Okay. All right, let's go into a recap. 
When the comedian, a masked vigilante from a bygone era, is killed by a mysterious burglar, outlaw vigilante Rorschach is determined to find out who is killing ex-masked heroes. So he warns his prior colleagues, his ex-partner Dan, aka Night Owl, the smartest man in the world, Adrian Veidt, aka Ozymandias, the Superman himself, John, aka Dr. Manhattan, who can bend matter to his will, and his girlfriend Lori, aka Silk Spectre. Meanwhile, the U.S. and the USSR are on the brink of annihilating each other with nuclear warheads. The only thing deterring this is the existence of Dr. Manhattan. But when Lori breaks up with him and a man accuses him of spreading cancer to his loved ones on national television, Dr. Manhattan grows tired of humanity and teleports to Mars, leaving the U.S. vulnerable to a Russian attack. Someone makes an attempt on Veidt's life, and while investigating, Rorschach is set up and thrown in prison, leaving Night Owl and Silk Spectre to break him out. Lori is teleported to Mars to join Dr. Manhattan, where she tries to convince him to come back to Earth to save it from nuclear war. Night Owl and Rorschach's investigation lead them to Veidt's office, where they learn that he was behind the people in John's life getting cancer. So they follow him to his lab in Antarctica, where they learn a horrific truth. Adrian has used Dr. Manhattan's energy signature to set off devastating explosions in several major cities, killing millions. Dr. Manhattan shows up to confront Adrian, but he is now powerless to stop Zvite Utopia from coming to life, as now all the countries of the world are now banding together in their fight against Dr. Manhattan. Unwilling to compromise his moral position, Rorschach leaves to tell the whole world of Adrian's plot, but Dr. Manhattan kills him before he can cause any further harm. Dr. Manhattan leaves Earth, and Rorschach's journal, detailing his suspicion of Vite, lands on the table of the New Frontiersman, a right-wing newspaper, End of movie. All right, guys, before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So one of the values that we hold really dear here at Wisecrack is being a lifelong learner, and Skillshare shares that mission statement, so we're really happy to have them sponsoring us. If you're looking to explore new skills or get inspired or deepen your existing passions, Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore and discover thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics like graphic design, productivity, creative writing, film and video, freelancing, and more. So with everyone locked inside under quarantine, now is a great time to learn some new skills. If you're looking for a class to take, I recommend checking out iPhone Filmmaking, Creative Cinematic Video on your phone. So if you've listened to our last couple podcasts, I've been giving some love to the movie Tangerine made back in 2015, because not only is it a great movie, but it was shot entirely on an iPhone. So basically, if you have an iPhone, you can make a movie. The teachers, Caleb and Niles, will teach you all the nuances to make your iPhone videos good enough for the silver screen. They'll detail the equipment, apps, and workflow that is helpful for beginners or experienced cinematographers curious about shooting on an iPhone. So by the time quarantine ends, you'll be ready to make that indie feature. And when you compare Skillshare to expensive in-person workshops or night classes, it is really affordable. An annual subscription is less than 10 bucks a month, and right now they're offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months. All you got to do is go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack for two free months of unlimited access to awesome classes. And now back to the show. All right. First thing I want to talk about, let's, uh, Alec, I, I'm not, I really don't want to pick on you because I, I, I've kind of like I've gone been set back up into and, a trap. No, really. I want to, I want to hear more about like kind of what feels a little bit off about the movie, because there are some things that actually um, have been pointed out in some really good video essays that I, that I'll recommend at some point uh, that are a little bit off from what the comic was going for. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this uncanny Valley thing or this tonal offness that you were speaking of. 
Yeah, and I think one thing to realize here, and I think we all probably agree with this, is Zack Snyder's really good at like creating specific moments, specific frames and stuff like that. And so he makes a lot of visual references uh, to the graphic novel. For instance, there's a dream in the graphic novel where uh, Night Owl 2 and Silk Spectre are kissing and there's like a, a nuke going off in the background. He recreates that. It's like really cool and really beautiful. Obviously, the fight choreography is really cool. But what happens is, in the, I feel like in the graphic novel, there's a sense, uh, you know, there's this theme of nostalgia. There's not only the nostalgia perfume, but it's all of these like old bloated superheroes sort of trying to relive their glory days. And it's kind of goofy. You know, Night Owl 2 is functionally a weird nerd. Uh, and he, he is in this movie as well. But what happens is, I think there's no better example of this. And maybe this is only in the ultimate cut, but Mason Hollis, the original Night Owl, in the graphic novel, he is confused with the other night owl. So some thugs come to his house and beat him up and murder him. Uh, and what happens is he tries to fight them off, but he's old and crippled. And so he's flashing back panel by panel, uh, imagining himself as a young man fighting criminals while these thugs are murdering him, right? Uh, but what happens in the movie with Zack Snyder is the same thing is happening. It's still cutting back to his sort of uh, delusions of you know his former days, but he's also beating the shit out of these people. And sure, they obviously win, but the old man is way too badass. Whereas in the graphic novel, he's this object of pity. I think that is greatly reduced here. Another example is there's a sort of weird nerdy rescue scene in the graphic novel that also plays out where Night Owl 2, it seems like he's facing some impotence, like he can't get it up. It's unclear, but there, he's making out with uh, Lori uh, and then they can't make it work. So he's standing naked in front of his costume. And then they try to go on a superhero mission to, again, relive the glory days. And, and they find a burning builder and, and they save it apart. But in the graphic novel, it's like, well, if I move the steering column, we can fit them all in. And they serve coffee to them. And it's weird and nerdy and kind of great because the whole movie is making fun of the genre. But in the Zack Snyder version, he's using the Gatling gun on his ship to shoot down a water tower. And uh, Lori literally does a superhero land like into the fire in the same kind of way that like Deadpool will make fun of years and years later. Um, so I think Zack Snyder's biggest problem is kind of his strength is that like he's really good at making things look badass, like 300, but by making <laughs> them look badass, it misses the point of the original comic, which are, these are a bunch of weird has-beens making, and lots of commentary about how they dress up funny uh, and are a bunch of weirdos. Or does it, that he makes it so badass, make it really sell the aesthetic completely to, uh, you know, he's the perfect person to pull off this satire, you know? That's just... Maybe. Well, sense. so, okay, I'm, I think that you put it in, you put it in really good words, because I think that this is also, if I were to complain about one thing, and that, like, is, what do we mean when we say filming the unfilmable? Like, when people said that this movie was unfilmable, I mean... Ryan, you brought that up. I mean, do you think that they were just talking about special effects? No, the reason is because the the the, the graphic, the nature of the graphic novel is really cool and uh, different for the time, and it had all it used all these supplemental materials to tell the story. You know, so you you saw like the 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 files from the FBI that kind of led you on something. You saw some other clues. You saw uh, the different newspaper reports. You saw graphs and stuff. It just like was telling the story with all this different stuff. So when people will talk about who's going to film this thing, they're kind of like, are you going to do that? Are you going to use that in the film? Um, how are you going to kind of take all this information that Alan Moore presented to you in different ways and do it cinematically? And he did kind of, you know, he, he didn't really do the, that, that much. Like, he, you know, there wasn't like 
like that many zooms in on graphs and computer screens and stuff. But uh, but he he definitely adapted frame for frame the comic, kind of like Sin City, like Robert Rodriguez did, like where like he literally said, "I'm I'm adapting literally the comic frame for frame in Sin City," and and you can you definitely see that kind of influence a little bit in Zack Snyder's, where where if you're a big fan of the comic, you like like when he get when the comedian gets kicked out the window, you're like, okay, that's straight up a, a comic cell from the thing, you know, realized in full, uh, you know, on cinema. So. I think that that's kind of what a lot of people meant. Yeah, um, I'll agree to that. Uh, and I think they did a, a pretty good job. I mean, we see uh, the book under the hood in the background so many times throughout the movie. I mean, we don't really actually get any chapters of it like we do uh, the Black Freighter thing in the Ultimate Cut, which shouldn't have been there anyway. Um, but I do think that, to Alex's point, the violence at times is too awesome. <laughs> no, no, it's it's no because perfectly awesome. Well, because if you're trying to, as the graphic novel does, kind of deconstruct the superhero genre during the action scenes, it almost seems like the movie is inhabiting the superhero genre, and so there's an awkward tension where it kind of goes back and forth between deconstructing it and then just relishing in it, and I think that's kind of where this kind of tonal disconnect can can go off but the one thing that I, I I'll argue that I think he's able to very smartly kind of maintain that critical distance is with the soundtrack because we don't get your regular superhero soundtrack of everything you know crescendoing to this epic moment we don't really get much of a score we get Bob Dylan Simon and Garfunkel which a, not only adds to the alternate history thing that's always going on in this movie, but so one particularly brilliant example I like is uh, during the Vietnam section where Dr. Manhattan is blowing up people's heads, we hear Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries uh, from... Oh, I have a complaint from about the that. third one. Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, and, and this is largely because we chatted a little bit. Sometimes Alec and I are, are bad and we do spo- podcast spoilers and talk a little bit about it, but... In Apocalypse, if you're to read it just straight up as a allusion to Apocalypse Now, which I think it very much asks us to do since we see the black helicopters in the background, it's in Vietnam, it's the same setting. Um, in Apocalypse Now, it is meant to undercut the seriousness of this character who is raiding this uh, village and thinks he's a total badass because he's just going to like wipe away this village so that he can surf. So if you kind of look at it intertextually, I think it's actually quite smart in how it undercuts the severity and the seriousness and the quote-unquote awesomeness of yes. the scene. Oh, see, I think it's the opposite because I think he's like... I I really like uh, a lot of the music selection here, but like specific... And I think he's being very deliberate. Like I think he is saying, I want to emulate this Apocalypse Now scene. But, you know, Apocalypse Now is this like anti-war movie. As you said, he wants to clear out and kill all these people so he can have a better surfing spot. And... Instead, he's just like, wouldn't it be cool if I put, I think, again, like, because he's so focused on aesthetic, he's just like, wouldn't it be cool if Dr. Manhattan blew up people's heads? And, you know, the you're just getting into his mind. You've seen too many Zack Snyder interviews. (laughs) Oh, no, I I only I I have not looked at any Zack. I don't I don't want to say I've never read a Zack Snyder interview, but I've not read any things except I think in the Wikipedia, he mentions that he even says the Tales from the Black Freighter doesn't belong in here. But that's a separate point. But uh I don't know. And again, like, I think tone is like a really hard and weird thing. 
I mean, I, I, I do think it is an intertextual thing where just as it's ridiculous and over the top and uh, like, you know, kind of questioning the glory of violence in this meaningless war, I think it accomplishes basically the same thing in this very short section, but still a really powerful part. Sorry, I basically just I basically just said the same thing that I said about it being it working intertextual intertextually but if you had not seen apocalypse now i can maybe see it being just like oh man it's so awesome so i don't know i think it comes down to like tone and it's like a weird amorphous thing to pin down and obviously apocalypse now has a tone and i think everyone agrees that it works uh and i don't know he's just really good at making it look cool yeah um there's another part where they play that song, I'm a boogeyman, while the while the Watchmen are trying to disperse a riot, especially with the comedian, um, you know, gassing people and hitting people with rubber bullets indiscriminately. I just think that that is a really good effort to kind of take down the self-seriousness that the Zack Snyder aesthetic would otherwise portray. There, there are some... Uh, some- interesting music choices i just want to mention so 99 red balloons i recently learned this people probably recognize it but it's a song about like nuclear armageddon (laughs) which is very fun and it plays that specific scene and i think it's a really good choice um but while dr manhattan's on mars they play uh there's this have you guys seen kyona scotsy it's like this weird experiment oh yeah baby philip glass yeah yeah so philip glass does the soundtrack and they play i think one or two songs from it and the whole film is kind of the, these time-lapse fast photos of the world and I, I think the subtitle of the film is like life out of order or something like that and it shows the challenger blowing yeah. up and it's kind of this like i mean i think it works as a weird meditative thing um but again i think very specific music choices there i think it's from the part of the movie called the grid which is pretty awesome in Kuyani Scotsi. If you're gonna if you're gonna watch one part of Kuyani Scotsi, watch the part called the grid. I think that's where they take the music from in the Doctor Manhattan section. And then go out and watch uh, Baraka and uh, Sahanasara or whatever the hell it's called. Samsara. Well, there's uh, those are similar movies, but there's actually like a another something Scotsi movie. But anyway. Um, Let's just talk about the thing that most people criticize this movie for. Let's talk about the ending. I mean, what do you guys yeah. think about the change, changing out the squid for Dr. Manhattan? Why do you think they made that choice, and how do you think it kind of ends up working? I think that they did it because, I mean, this is a huge movie, a huge risk, and just they, I think it was just the sheer idea of, of introducing a giant squid, which kind of seems like so absurd and like a non sequitur even at the end of the movie as the, the big destructive force just seemed maybe like it, it was, uh, people wouldn't buy it or something, or it was too silly and, or maybe it was too big of an effect that would have cost a hundred bazillion dollars. But then honestly, I'm, I'm not usually a big fan of making such a drastic choice, uh, change, from the source material, since I totally read it and I know this one, and I'm uh, uh, and I'm <laughs> connected to it emotionally. But um, this was like a very smart change, I thought. Like in terms of like being, if you're a story editor, in terms of just truncating a narrative and, and trying to uh, work together pieces in different ways. Like I thought this was a very smart change. It does change the ending a lot and in, in, uh, in everything, but it I think it makes Doctor Manhattan's character way cooler at the end of the day. The fact that he recognizes 
that Ozymandias is right, quote unquote, you know, like, like, I think that that was cool for the novel, for the movie. I, I'm, I actually kind of agree with Ryan in that I think it's a smart choice. You've already got a movie that's three and a half hours in the ultimate cut. There's there. I think the reason the, I think the reason it works in the graphic novel rests a lot on the unfilmable parts. Like there's a supplemental material. You're introduced to these other li- uh, these other cells of, you know, artist making things. There's all these other characters that have to disappear on an island that make the squid that then die. And for an already long movie, I think you just have to cut that out. And so I think the basic premise of Dr. Manhattan did it. I'm okay with, I'm okay with that. Um, and I think a lot of it still works. But the thing that I find that kind of ruins it is two things. One is that Zack Snyder up the stakes. What I think is really great about Alan Moore's ending is that New York kills, I think, three million or, or a few million people for world peace, which is a horrifying number. But Zack Snyder made it New York and Moscow and all these things. So uh, it's a lot greater of a crime. And I think I think the few million lives for all of humanity is at least a little more debatable than what in the movie he's just killing way way more people right so i think it removes at least a little bit of the ambiguity but also the thing that kind of bothers me is that in the graphic novel the conversation is mostly people are obviously outraged when they learn what ozymandias did but it's mostly a conversation between manhattan and ozymandias and ozymandias is kind of asking dr manhattan like do you think i did the right thing is a kind of scene that happens later uh at which point he refuses to sort of morally absolve him but says nothing ever ends and then this one everyone seems to just be like "Mm -hmm, yep ozymandias is totally right we can't do it whereas i think in the graphic novel there's this better sense that everyone feels blackmailed and gross about it um may just seem a little too enthusiastic. And the last thing is, and I don't know if this is just in the ultimate cut, but the nothing, nothing ever end lines, uh, ha- said by Lori. Yeah. But in a way that's yeah. decontextualized, like it's like, well, John would have said this. And it's like, that line doesn't mean the thing that made it good anymore. Unless it's in that conversation where Ozymandias is asking for a sort of moral absolution. Yeah. Don't let me forget to, cause I do want to talk about what we think that line means. Um, but I also, when I first saw it, I thought it was a smart change too, because the first time I read the graphic novel, I was confused as hell as to why they even, why they even had a giant squid, you know, but one thing I do want to, I said I would uh, recommend a video essay, Uh, Captain Christian did a really good Watchmen video essay years ago, um, and he brought, he he pointed out something that in the graphic novel, the violence is um, kind of muted a little bit up until the squid comes in and then the squid is the most grotesque part of the entire graphic novel i mean not there are like pages of people being disfigured and uh it's really actually hard to read um and how it kind of really emphasized the horror of what ozymandias did whereas in the movie it's the opposite in the movie we're seeing all this badass really bloody action like when Laurie and Dan beat up those thugs in the alleyway, I mean, they are fucking them a up. A bone, you know? like a bone, like, like ejects from the guy's arm. <laughs> that yeah, was cool. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was cool. It was cool. But then when the, the whole Dr. Manhattan's energy signal or whatever destroying New York, which is what we see, it's like the opposite. We see no blood. We see people just evaporate, but it doesn't hit you like it does in the graphic novel where, you know, um, we see the the magnitude of the violence, the magnitude of the destruction, whereas 
at the end of the movie, it is kind of just your average a city being leveled. We've seen it many times. Zack Snyder would later do it in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. You know, it's just something that we'd all seen before, whereas like the truly horrific nature of it was really communicated quite well in the graphic novel. And so I, I totally uh, attribute this to Captain Christian's video essay, but I think that it's a pretty astute point and uh, something that I think that is does make the movie a little bit weaker. And to Alex's point, almost makes the audience kind of go along with his plan a little bit more. Don't get me wrong. I would have loved to see the giant squid realized. And that is such a bizarre ending to a, to a book. Uh, so it would have been cool to see, but I think what we got was cool. But yeah, I, I pretty much agree with what you guys said. My problem is that, uh, don't you think people would come to the conclusion that Dr. Manhattan did this to make himself a scapegoat? Like, people would kind of theorize what Ozymandias did, but instead attribute it to Dr. Manhattan, whereas a giant octopus from another dimension is so wild and so out of nowhere that people wouldn't suspect anything except what it seems like. No, because we'd already seen Dr. Man people already thought of Dr. Manhattan as kind of a loose cannon already because of what had happened at the... Uh earlier right on on the on at the tv station yeah i mean yeah that's fair if i wanted to be like really nerdy critical about it and i don't even support this view that we should try to find potholes but there's nothing you can do about dr manhattan like if dr manhattan wants to blow up the soviet union in america there's nothing feasibly they can do whereas you know this unknown squid thing i guess maybe they can try to develop some countermeasures or something you make another Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> whether or not, but whether or not it's possible, it's the idea that mankind has to join together to try. Do you want to talk? So, okay, so let's talk about uh, that line that should have, that Dr. Manhattan should have read that Laurie ends up saying is that nothing ever ends. Now, in our video on Friday, we have a particular interpretation of that as, it, as it's relevant to the HBO show, which, as everyone knows, is quite different than the graphic novel. But... Just within the context of the just the graphic novel, what did you think it, he meant by that at that point? I think there's a sense that all events, past, present, and future, are interconnected, or at least that's kind of the interpretation we take with the show as well. But I do think it plays here in that, like, this massive thing that Byte did to change the course of history it's impossible to say in the moment whether or not it was worth it because nothing ever ends. Like as we, even as we see in the TV show, or if you want to ignore the TV show, like the consequences of this action will literally never end as it ripples throughout history in the future. Right. Yeah. The way that I had initially interpreted it was as kind of a reflection of, of the Percy Shelley poem that, that Vite is obsessed with. You know, we, we see it um, in the movie. We just see, the my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. From the Percy Shelley poem, but then the lines right after that are nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. So to me, it was Doctor Manhattan just telling him, in a sense, that um, you know, even the thing that you tried to avoid will not end because, uh, like the decay and despair that. Ramesses II ended up being subjected to will also be subjected to your dream. Yeah, and I do think there's like a lot of 
and I think this is what makes the graphic novel so good, is there's a lot of parallel things happening that help contextualize Vite. And this is why I agree, and even Zack Snyder agrees, the tales from the Black Freighter don't work in the ultimate cut because it just feels too disjointed. But that's a story about a guy who wants to save his wife uh, and children from this horrible threat, but in the process sort of becomes the monster that he's trying to fight. And, you know, he ends up joining the Black Freighter. Um, so I think that's one way to contextualize it. But another way with nothing ever ends is just the story of Lori, right? And that she, her history, her sort of founding moment goes back to the comedian sexually assaulting her mother. Uh, and Dr. Manhattan calls it a thermodynamic miracle that despite, you know, all the thousands of generations, despite that horrible incident, like there is in this moment, this sort of beautiful thing in front of him that happens. So without sort of saying it's okay, Adrian, you did the right thing. Or in similarly, without saying like nobody's saying that the comedian sexually assaulting uh, uh, Silk Spectre was a good thing, but in the way that these things ripple throughout history, we can see like the sort of, complicatedness of them. And I think it's not kind of getting at that kind of idea. So you mentioned the Black Freighter real quick. Um, do you think that it's meant to specifically parallel Ozymandias's act or Rorschach? Because I'm, because in a way, the fact that it could be either one, because it's like, like Rorschach, the castaway becomes grimmer and more dark as he does when he needs to survive, like Rorschach, who, you know, after he, uh, there's that whole story he tells about him investigating the disappearance of a little girl and then finding the guy who killed her and then saying that, uh, you know, uh, Walter Kovacs died that day and Rorschach was born and his disposition towards evil just gets, you know, grimmer and deeper and to the point where he says there's good and there's bad and the bad need to be put down. And then on the other hand, you could also look at like it like Ozymandias and just saying that he becomes the this monster because of his deeds and the thing I like about that is that when we think about kind of the moral center of the movie, it really is a war between the ideals of Rorschach and Ozymandias because, you know, Rorschach is the deontologist who believe, who refuses to uh, bend his moral code. And if, you know, killing millions of people is wrong, no matter for what end. And then we have Ozymandias, who's more the consequentialist, who believes that, you know, killing millions to save billions is a just thing. And I like that the story can uh, kind of apply to both people. Yeah. And the I don't know if I missed this, if this is in the graphic novel, but in the Tales from the Black Freighter in the movie, the sail gets splattered with something that kind of looks like Rorschach's pattern. So I think they are being intentional about that. Yeah, I noticed that watching the movie as well, but I don't remember it from the graphic novel either. It seems like the kind of thing that that Zack Snyder might have added. Yeah. I, I also, I mean, one thing from reading the graphic novel and the movie is just, you know, and I think this is intentional in both. It's just what a creep Rorschach is. I mean, he's essentially uh, I, like just mad that everyone's having sex and doing drugs all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I never really looked at it like that. I mean, to me, he's more like Travis Bickle. And okay. Well, actually I like Rorschach more than I like Travis Bickle and taxi driver, but I mean, it's hard to say just how depraved the streets really are and how sick he really is. Because how can you really know? I mean, there's one line that I think is like full on. He said he describes something of screams like an abattoir, which is a slaughterhouse full of retarded children and the night reeks of fornication and bad consciences. And like his mom uh, was like a prostitute. 
And through that trauma, he's just like, all prostitutes are evil, which is, is weird. Or like, I, he's the type that's like premarital sex is bad is all I'm saying. It's, yeah, it's hard to morally evaluate these kind of things. Like, I think of a similar thing with uh, Gotham in the Dark Knight trilogy. Like, apparently the city is so bad, but what exactly is is going on here? And what exactly is so bad that it justifies, you know, like, taking a kind of fascistic attitude towards what is good and what is bad and enforcing it on your own terms? And I think to a large extent, that's what Alan Moore is kind of going for. Uh, in the character of Rorschach is kind of deconstructing people like Batman who thinks who thinks that, you know, their moral code should be imposed on everyone. Like me. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> um, anything else that you guys wanted to bring up? Not at the top of my head. I'm just doing a quick scan. While you're scanning, I will just say that I appreciate that the movie jumps back and forth in time like the graphic novel. I mean, you can easily imagine a scenario where the writer gets pressured by the studio to uh, linear, linearly tell the story of Dr. Manhattan because I think a lot of mainstream viewers, when they watch this movie and they see this giant dude with a big blue dong, they're like, what the fuck is going on? Whereas if they had told kind of the linear superhero narrative that we're all used to of like, you know, your incredible Hulk-like scenario turning him into a badass, people would be a lot more comfortable. But um, I just can't respect them enough for doing it like they did the graphic novel and, you know, also because it works with the whole thing of we experience the the story like Dr. Manhattan experiences time. Um, and, you know, even so, Alec, you mentioned the part where Hollis Mason gets killed. That's probably one of the worst parts of the movie, and that is not in the theatrical cut. Um, and But I will say that I, I, I think your distinction about him being like kind of like flashing back to his lame glory days is is apt but i do like that it flashed that it flashes back to his past enemies because at least it works with the whole time thing that is a a visual motif not only in the movie but in the graphic novel definitely and so them leaning into that is something that i think is pretty smart i have okay so i have two quick things one of which i've been obligated to ask about from uh mike Luxenberg. but what this is the first one Richard Nixon's nose. (laughs) (laughs) Great choice. Bold choice. I liked it. Okay. I thought it was weird, but I'm not going to hate on it. There are some people that look really good, like that uh, are, um, you know, uh, actors playing, whether it's David Bowie or um, Truman Capote or um, Andy Warhol. Some of them look really good. The Nixon one doesn't look as good, but I don't know. I kind of always imagined that it was supposed to be like that. Like he was kind of this, this monster in his own right that like his makeup was almost too extreme because they wanted to make him up like some sort of a bad movie villain. So they were, they were going for like a Nicholas Cage and never on a Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, I I was just going to bring up how weird it is, how this movie is so great. And then they give him the keys to the castle on Superman and Batman versus Superman. And you know my feelings on that, Jared. How the fuck do you go from this masterpiece to that pile of hot trash? 
Well, I think it's actually a lot of what we're talking about. And we actually have a video coming up about this. But basically, um, I mean, I'll give you like a little sneak peek as to what we're going to be talking about. But with The Dark Knight Returns also being a piece of like deconstructive art, he doesn't quite get that it's not supposed to be awesome. And he just leans into how everything is supposed to be dark, gritty, and awesome. Whereas a lot of these graphic novels were... They were, yes, dark and gritty, but they were very critical of what they were portraying. And he doesn't really get that critical edge, especially when, you know, so much of it is lifted from the Frank Miller text. And I think even to some degree Watchmen. Um, so, I, I mean, that's part of it. There's a lot going wrong with those movies. But um, does anyone know what he's up to? Is he just like kind of like taking care of his whole family situation or is he working on something? Oh he, yeah, yeah. He, he's making the Fountainhead, the the, oh, right, the Ayn because, Rand uh, uh, novel. Right, because he's a Randian. Yeah, he's I an objectivist. About that. I mean, yeah. and then Army of the Dead. I forgot about. I don't even know what that's all about. Apparently, it's some. It's a zombie zombie movie. Isn't that what's the Evil Dead two called? You're, Don, oh, you're Don thinking of Army of Dark. You're thinking of Army of Darkness. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of Army of Darkness, and no, that's one of my favorite movies ever I, there's no way he's making, making that <laughs> the last the last yeah. thing this is what Lux wanted me to bring up so in the con okay. so there's the scene in the movie where Lori goes on archie the, the ship and presses the flamethrower button and you're like what a dumb asshole uh. and Lux wanted me to say that in the comic book she's looking for a lighter so she's like a lot less dumb in the comic book because it's kind of like her vices are causing her to do this dumb thing by desperately looking for a lighter function in Archie and then, you know, makes the place catch on fire. Whereas in this version, she's just dumb. Gotcha. I didn't really think of her as dumb, but it was a good setup for the orgasm joke that later happens. Does that happen in the graphic novel? I don't I remember. Don't think so. Also, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah plays, which I can't decide is like really good, like just funny or not. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be honest. I even for the three and a half hour long cut, I didn't fast forward through any part except the sex scene because what I just don't really I don't really love that. That scene. scene's yeah. awesome. That's one of the most memorable scenes in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't What's know. What's wrong Maybe with you, I, Jared? Yeah, maybe I'm just sexually inhibited. <laughs> Too old. <laughs> Too old. Um, all right. We're going to go into the mailbag. You can hit us up at 213-534-8807 if you want to leave us a voicemail. That's 21ElfHut07. It's where the elves party. Uh, we got a couple ones from some old school properties. Uh, let's hear one from Jeff. He talks about They Live, a movie all three of us love. Hey guys, this is Jeff from Portland, Oregon. Hey, I was just listening to some backlog episodes, uh, specifically the They Live episode and the subsequent ones where we get to hear from Austin about his point of view on They Live. And uh, I kind of had a contradicting opinion to Austin as far as the kind of shattering of your worldview or changing of the worldview with taking the red pill. Um, I actually went through a... Uh, a kind of a shattering of my theological background. And I actually felt it relieving. Um, I, you know, I may have come from a much different experience than Austin did, but I definitely felt it relieving, like taking the red pill. Yes, it was sweet and it was delicious because I finally felt 
relief from all of this scary, weird overtone that is propagated throughout the Christianity and the, and the Christian mythos. Anyway, that's just my thoughts. Hope to hear from you guys. Peace. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for that very personal email. I wish Austin was here. Um, I don't really remember what exactly we were talking about with the They Live podcast, but I'm sure it was more about the shattering of the grand illusion stuff that we're always talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, you guys got anything on that? I, I mean, I, I had a very similar experience growing up, you know, like like I was I felt like I was way more stressed out growing up when I was, you know, I felt binded by I, these super harsh ideologies. And then when I kind of realized, oh, wait, I don't have to do that. Life's a state of mind kind of thing, whatever. Then I felt free, baby. And I could think how, you know, however I wanted. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I too uh, uh, did not, it didn't just leave me cold and stunned and shattered to be like, oh my God, everything I know is a lie. I kind of was like, oh, awesome. Everything I know is a lie. Sweet. Like uh, I can finally get on with my, <laughs> with my real life. <laughs> I can guess yeah. what Austin said based on what Khan would say. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Uh, I think okay. There, there might be two ideas. Zizek might say the process of awakening is painful, which I think he said about they live, uh, which kind of is against what uh, you and the caller are saying. But also, I think there's this idea in Lacan that we kind of have this uh, desire that we never actually want to reach. We just want to get the joy of like approaching it. Uh, and so the idea is like, we always want to be pulling back another curtain. We always want to like do that extra step. And so maybe that's kind of like a, a stressful thing. Again, I'm just speculating on what Austin might say. Sorry. I'm, I, well, you saying that made me remember more what we were talking about at the time. I think I was going on my shtick about how like taking the red pill tastes good and how people like having that illusion shattered. And so that would go more to what Jeff and Ryan were talking about. But uh, anyway, let's do one more voicemail. We got one from Hunter about Scott Pilgrim. Hi, it's Hunter. I'm a OG listener. I've been listening since the beginning. Huge fan of y'all. Uh, I was re-listening to your uh, Scott Pilgrim podcast, and I believe Austin said something about how Mega Scott is made at kind of in a British humor kind of way, as he's there that Bill tension to take it away uh, for a stylistic choice. I would like to argue that maybe for once in Edgar Wright's career, that was more of a plot choice because maybe uh, he's trying to say something about how instead of trying to fight our past, we should embrace it. Because I believe Scott says after uh, they walk out of uh, the rocket or whatever the name of the the concert hall is, is that uh, him and Mega Scott shot the shit and they actually have a lot in common. So maybe that means something about Edgar Wright and Flaw. I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, I like that reading of of Scott Pilgrim, whereas it's not just a joke of him seeing his shadow and uh, instead of defeating it, he just kind of says, like, yeah, cool, man, let's hang out. You know, a kind of a a coming of a a self-acceptance of, like, how he can be a shitty person, which is ultimately what he has to kind of accept when he tells... uh, I can't remember the name of the... Something... Cho, uh, his Asian girlfriend, right? And he has to, you know, come to the come to the terms of the fact that he cheated on her. Uh, so I like that reading. Um, all right, we're gonna go into the emails. You can hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. We got one from Rob from Australia. He said, "Good day, Wisecrack. You forgot to mention the least accurate part of Contagion: Jude Law's Australian accent. Literally, no one has says crikey since 2006. <laughs> Rest in peace, Steve Irwin." 
Austin, I'm surprised you didn't point that out. We got a lot of we got a lot of people, uh, you know, speaking to Austin, and Austin's not here today. But uh, thank you for that, Rob from Australia. Uh, this one's from Tom. We got a couple emails about this, and this is about my bad. Uh, he said, "I just listened to your Contagion podcast, in which you guys mentioned that several city population figures mentioned in the movie were significantly higher than they are in reality." Uh, my inner pedant wants you to know that some of the numbers you repeated from the movie are in fact accurate. When you say a city has a certain number of people in it, you could either be referring to the population of the city proper or the larger metro area, and context determines which number is more relevant. Uh, for example, Google tells me that San Francisco's population is under 900,000, but its metro area is 4.7 million. I can't remember the precise context from the movie, but when discussing how many people are at risk during a pandemic, it's likely that the 4.7 million is the meaningful number because a virus isn't going to honor city lines. Thanks and love the podcast from Tom. So I had mentioned that uh, I was surprised to see that some of the numbers seemed a, a bit exaggerated in the population numbers in Contagion. But I think I was probably just going by the Google numbers that Tom said. So thank you for correcting me. We got a couple other emails, people correcting me as well. So sorry about so sorry about that. Uh, and then we're going to end off today with a pretty awesome email from Lady McBitch. She says, hello. She says, hello, friends. I was watching your live stream on the podcast, live stream podcast on Contagion. I had two ideas pop in my head. First was that this might be a fun film to put on our family movie night. Because, you know, every night is movie night since our entire country is in quarantine. Second, I thought it would be funny if I documented every single time you guys touched your face on camera. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Boy, was I fucking wrong. My dad was already at the precipice of paranoia ever since our president elevated the general quarantine to an enhanced community quarantine. Watching this movie for what was supposed to be a fun family night was a mistake because it definitely pushed him over the edge. He's now a full blown doomsday prepper conspiracy theorist. I've ultimately condemned myself and the rest of my family, no exit style, to suffer through his how the government has been lying to us about the virus TED talk every time the nightly news comes on. <laughs> Hell truly is other people. Secondly, I did document every single instance you guys touched your face, and here's a screen cap of the results. So this is in fact something that, um, that so on the average for the 50-minute podcast that we did, I touched my face for an average of 43 seconds. All right, for 43 seconds, Helen touched her face for a minute 25 seconds, and Austin, with the clear win, touched his face for two minutes and 25 seconds of total time. <laughs> wow, it wasn't just instances; it was duration. That's that's harder. It was. It, it was duration. It was hardcore. So, holy shit! Uh, I appreciate that during quarantine, you just you just might have some time to kill. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you for that, Lady McBitch. Um, uh, that's uh, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. So, uh, where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? Um, well, since I got a lot of time, I've been making lots of quarantine videos lately. So you can find those on Ryan's Shorts, uh, which is on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of that shit. So Ryan Shorts, that's where you can find me. Cool. And uh, Alec? Uh, I'm on Twitter at WisecrackAlec. That's A-L-E-C. Cool. All right, guys. We will catch you next time. Thanks for listening in. Thank you. And, yeah. Goodbye from Hollywood, California, in the quarantine edition. Peace. Nothing ever ends.